This is uh, concluding this week, which is oriented around the Satipatthana teachings, uh, because this term mindfulness is uh, very commonly spoken of uh, and brought up, and perhaps in ways that aren't exactly the way the Buddha expressed it. But obviously considered to be very helpful. Mm-hmm. We're trying to get down to what was particular about the Buddha's expression of this term. Mm-hmm. Or why, though, these aren't the only teachings he gave, by any means. Um, Sati is a component of the Eightfold Path. And we have such phrases as uh, <clears throat> it may, such as this, the in the Sangyutta, the tenth sutra of that section. So it is addressing the bhikkhunis. So it is sisters. So it is. It may be expected of anyone, sisters, whether bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, who dwells with the mind well established in the four establishments of mindfulness, that such a one will perceive successfully loftier stages of distinction. And uh, things such as uh, mindfulness of the body leads to the deathless. Um, mindfulness of the body, uh, the deathless is lost if one does not establish mindfulness of the body. In fact, the four establishments of mindfulness. And, uh, Certainly. Mm. What is mindfulness then? Mm. So reviewing this, um, the ability to bear something in mind. Very simple statement. Uh, needs a steady attention, but also, uh, you know, it's associated with the quality of remembering. The, the Sanskrit root smriti, recall, remember. So exactly what is meant by mind in this instance, if we're using mindfulness, which isn't even the, isn't even the Pali word. But, uh, okay, so a remembering kind of mind. It means there's a depth to it. So it's not just flashing from one point to the next, or even, but it's pondering. That ability is a depth where something's happening and one stays with it, lingering in it, getting the meaning, reflective. So it's a reflective quality, which can be uh, supported by deliberate, reflective thinking, turning something over till you really get the meaning, or even without it, just 
dwelling on it, if there, if there is that skill. Mindfulness essentially is there to, to bar uh, corrupting influences from accessing. So anyway, it establishes a particular frame of reference, which is another very fortunate um, phrase. I think Ajahn Tanisaro came up with frame of reference. It creates a frame. Put place that around it, and then within that, what's going on? So there's a kind of hard side to it, which is that ability to sustain and repel, and there's a soft side to it, the inner side, which is actually lingering in, taking in the qualities, turning them over. So this then, sati, and really to uh, bear in mind this. Um, does not by any means imply that the focus has to be particularly narrow. As it said, one bears in mind the meanings of teachings given long ago. And, you know, it doesn't mean you could, that it's not really concentrating in, in the way we would assume it to be. In fact, words such as Ekodibawa and uh, Ekagata, unification and uh, one-pointedness aren't even used. And where they are referred to, they come rather later. That is their result. Because of mindfulness, because of cultivating this, one has arrived at a particular singularity of mind and a certain, ah, this is where it is. That's the result, not the agent of it. Uh, so the notion one should fixate one's attention upon one point isn't what's recommended. In fact, as we notice in these elucidations of the teaching, the attention is quite, it's quite mobile, contemplating different qualities, different aspects, mm. and fairly broad, different states of mind. So the idea one should concentrate is, I think, uh, well-meaning, but perhaps uh, subject to misinterpretation. One should certainly be mindful. And that's not uncollected. But at the same time, it's not fixated. It means the energy is not so pressurized. The mind is not constricted. It's allowed its, its ability to to turn things over, as in fact, you know, in the case of the Buddha, uh, you know, if he hadn't actually spent that time thinking and remembering about being a little boy sitting a tr- under a tree, and was not fixating his attention on a particular point, but remembering the meaning of something that occurred long ago, <laughs> and dwelling upon it and thinking it through, he wouldn't have got the hint, this is the way to awakening. So in fact, all of the Buddha's awakening really you say, hinges upon him having a wandering mind. <laughs> but wandering for a particular purpose. <laughs> What's the purpose? Where is it comfortable? Where is it steady? Where do I feel more serene? Where do I feel steadier, more stable, less pressurized, less frantic, but at the same time clear, upright. Where's that? That kind of inquiry. And I think that's the important uh, feature, because 
once you get this sense of sati, then uh, you know the objects can be manifold, and that's part of the beauty of it. He said stretching, leaning, eating, urinating, moving around, you know, all different kinds of states of mind, one maintains sati. But, uh, clearly there is a certain sense of uh, a progressive quality to it. Mm. Is that we are deriving, it's coming down to a singularity of, of, of meaning, which could be, you know, uh, this is just impermanent phenomena changing. Don't get lost in it. These are particular qualities of interest or disinterest, passion or aversion that arise around these things. Don't get lost in that. Instead, maintain sati. And what does that quality? Sati itself becomes, in a way, the focus, the sense of that I am mindful. Is that stability? On sustaining a frame of reference. So rather than the content, uh, the holding, the careful holding, content changes. Certainly, there is an encouraged review of the different forms of content, bodily, feeling, citta, and and phenomena. But you notice with that, the progression is towards a singularity, noticing these are bodily factors, these are mental factors. So it really radically simplifies from the tasty, the pungent, the fruity, the colourful, the bright, the disgusting, down to just there's a body, there's a feeling. It simplifies and down to just the fact of there is body, there is feeling, there is mind. That's a radical simplification which I think is in line with what we see in the Chula Sunyata Sutta the discourse on emptiness or emptying taking out the distinctions to arrive at a singularity and so we notice this and uh, just reviewing some of these texts we see it's quite a distinction between as I've mentioned the Sanyuta presentations and the longer presentations in the Majima and Diga collections and bearing in mind that these suttas are all been compiled, remembered and ordered, they weren't the Buddha didn't create books these have just been scooped up and the sense is that the Sangyutta is probably the earlier because it's all the bits and pieces rather like tiles of a mosaic and the Majima have been more worked over to present more full, authoritative um, and uh, thorough texts. And these Majima and Diga present themselves really as a compilation, a compendium in which they packed everything. You know, all the Buddhas, they try to kind of squeeze them all in into that. Uh, um, you know, like mindfulness of breathing, a supakamatan, the eightfold path. And the earlier the Sanyuta, none of those are there. And yet the sense is there that cultivate this you will realise the deathless. Now it's not to say that these uh, all these other features are irrelevant. And it I would suggest that it does mean one can 
select, you know, so as it's said in the advice to Megia, you know, if your mind is obsessed with lust, then do the asupa, the unattractiveness of the body. Uh, if your mind is kind of frantically uh, thinking a lot, do anapanasati, steady your energies with breathing. Uh, so they're all, they're all there. Yeah. And one can select and choose in accordance with what's necessary. But what is necessary in all of these, as we recognize, is, is faith. So sati as it appears in the Indriya depends upon confidence, having trust and faith, and feeling that sense of confidence. Yeah, this is energy. One feels, yeah, I want to do this. Yeah, I can apply myself to this. There's something I can do here. Yeah. And then sati, and then samadhi and panya. Clearly, if we don't have uh, sadha, faith, confidence, then you just feel not going to work, is it? So it, it, it requires one to earnestly consider: well, you know, where, where does your faith arise, and where does your energy pick up? What can you can you get your mind on to to feel as relevant and significant, and get get apply yourself to, not just because you have to, because you want to. Because it means something to me. This is, this is the bit that's really getting me. So we don't have to go like at school, go through a whole list of meditation subjects. You find the one that really meets your needs, that your mind can cope with and sustain mindfulness of. And this is alluded to in the uh, uh, Satipatthana Suttas is the quality of atapi. One is eager, atapi, a certain sense of ardour, eager. And it's enthused, yeah. Without that, it's going to go stale, isn't it? Just plugging away at something you don't really feel that interested in. Attapi is one of them, and the other one is Sampajana. Sampajana. So this word jhana, which isn't the same as jhana, you know, though it sounds similar in English. Jhana is to do with direct, non-conceptual knowing as opposed to manyati, which is to do with conceiving. So jhanati, one directly knows. It's as if the mind is listening rather than talking. So you have the quality of, what do you call it, (laughs) awareness. You're listening, receptive, and and you're placing not on interpretations of experience, not on whether you what you feel about it, but to, as direct as you can on the experience. And sampa is two emphatics. So it's thoroughly, fully, uh, directly knowing. And so people translate it in a number of different ways. So these two, in the larger elucidations, these two factors come in. And they help to give you, like, the precursor to sati is that one is eager, one is enthusiasm. Naturally, this is associated with faith and energy. And pajanati, sampajana, one is uh, directly sensing it. Not because of the danger of, of conceiving tends towards mental interpretations and proliferations. So directly knowing. And what's the result of this? Well, uh, sati itself is a stabilizing effect. And if one is directly knowing, one is also 
aware not just of the object but a sense of one is stable in order to directly know your mind has to be steady and listening it's not racing around but it can move around the difference being that the scattered mind is, is led by the object that is where the object delights, irritates or annoys that's how our mind gets moved we're very much tethered to the qualities that the object evokes you know, in, in, a, in a careless way you just, you know, immediate flash impression you grab it, mind grabs it and is pulled around by it uh, whether it's interesting great idea uh, nasty thought, terrible memory it, the mind is mesmerised, trapped, caught by the quality of that and moved around by it yeah. Yeah. so it has no stability you know, with uh, properly established mindfulness then you may get the stability and then you or your, your awareness your awareness determines what, how I want to move around this brings up the quality of Dhamma Vijaya investigation so certainly there's movement the movement now is coming from a place of, of, of wisdom conscious discernment rather than uh, blindly led so it's subject based you could say rather than object based so these are themes to I think to uh, I offer anyway to, to bear in mind uh, well, clearly these are you know, foundational themes for meditation practice and for our lives in general so quite you know to just review and get it right In terms of objects, we can see that um, you know certain features of, of uh, what people were dealing with in those days. Um, you know, physical pain comes up, uh, a lot of sickness is coming up, um, passion is there, sexual desire is there. Good old steady themes are uh, present for human beings. Um, but uh, I would suggest that one, uh, one or two features that we should really uh, require to, to upgrade our sati around are the particular features of modern life that, that, that concern us all, they, they infiltrate us all. And uh, this is really uh, down to one, one term, the mechanisation of life. Uh, so whereas at the time of the Buddha people were certainly working out in the fields or selling, trading no clocks no fixed working hours uh, no traffic, no cars, no speed everything just could go as fast as an ox cart that's about it very earthy, grounded Rhythm of nature. Nowadays, not earthy, not grounded, no rhythms of nature. Uh, you work the eight hour day or the ten hour day, you do overtime, you work to the clock. You start at eight, you finish at this time. You have things done by the end of the week, then you get your pay. So, we, uh, you know, an artificial structure imposed upon life, 
uh, tremendous uh, pressure of the business world to make more, faster, quicker, that pushes everything along faster, quicker. Uh, and naturally the mind is then tethered to these uh, uh, escalating velocities uh, uh, and to try to accommodate and, and live in accordance with them. And there's no... So it's, it's really wrenched out of its home base, which is uh, in this very body with its consciousness, perceptions and feelings, into the abstract world, destinations, job, future, media, tablets, roads, timetables, schedules, all this with a sense of faster, quicker, more. And clearly, you know, this isn't, uh, doesn't need a lot of detail to spell that out, the results of it. Most people living under huge amount of stress and uh, uh, barely aware of their bodies. So having you know, taught in retreats and listened to people's uh, topics, they come retreat, you know, they say about most, whatever I teach, I sometimes if I teach something on jitta or anapanasati or metabhavana, it doesn't really matter what the retreat's called because it generally comes down to dealing with obsessive thinking and self-aversion. <laughs> you know, right across the board. Well, okay. <laughs> so, you know, doing contemplating livers and spleen isn't really going to do that, though, not to deny the validity of that, but you can recognise this. You know, plenty of people working in hospitals who see livers and spleens and they're not our hunts. And they see those things all day long. Uh, doesn't get in, doesn't seem to give them lofty distinctions. Because uh, <laughs> nobody really has it, takes it in, or the meaning of it. Or really, what's more relevant is just to get out, you know, to discharge the, the stress and get out of the compulsive thinking endless proliferations of thought is, and the energies and the, the kind of tension that becomes so endemic that people barely realise it's tension because they never know what relaxing is. Really deep rest, sleeplessness, insomnia, medication and uh, add to that the um, so what's needed, you know, we come into body, it says, it says in the sutta, same sutta, contemplating the body in the body arises in based on the body, either a fever in the body or sluggishness of mind, or the mind is distracted outwardly. So this is what is contemplating the body, he recognises that based upon the body there's sluggishness in mind, which means a sense of the stale, stagnant energy. So it's, it's based on the body, sluggishness of mind. 
and then or the mind is distracted outwardly well you know you magnify those two terms you know uh, and this is really the scenario for uh, most well majority of meditators either just slump because they don't they don't their mind has never been used to running at less than 100 miles an hour so there's no body reference there's no sense of a stable present uh, bright body internally so you switch off the media and people collapse or the mind is distracted outwardly which means there's still no sense of a stable present body and so the mind just scatters this, that, this, that, tomorrow, yesterday, plans, what about him, what about Lurden, and, and you know, it just goes like that. These two, two modes, um, and they're just fighting with it, it's not going to do any good. So it's, it says here, the Bhagavad then direct his mind towards some inspiring sign, something where gladness uh, arises, say. What about faith in? We recollect virtue. Huge requirement for cultivation of goodwill. Uh, Because although people are not necessarily mean or nasty, people are often dislocated from any kind of real healthy relationship with other people. We're We're just flashing by. There's no sense of really being welcomed or appreciated because most people you just walk past or see them on a screen. There isn't that which would have been you go to India even nowadays, you know, it's just people are bonding all the time, sitting around the street, nattering to each other. And you can imagine when there's nothing else, that would have been pretty normal. And with this dysfunctionality of our social life, a sense of welcomed, uh, enjoyed, befriended, gets absent. So these can be inspiring signs, gladdening signs, to reflect upon, to notice if they're absent, then they're absent, then one should really attend and generate and reflect and ponder on, on images, occasions, perceptions and memories that will evoke that inspiring sign, that sense of brightness or uplift or confidence or, um, you know. Uh, When it's gladdened, then gladdened, mind is uplifted, the body becomes tranquil. So that's the process. To, to review. So the other calming that doesn't occur through uh, suppressing things or trying to get one pointed and shutting everything down, uh, not in this sequence it isn't anyway, it's directed, it arises through a sense of opening the mind to review, ponder qualities that are supportive, listening to them, lingering in them, the mind lifts up, we feel bright, and then effect in the body. Uh, and so this sense of connecting things to, to the body. Now clearly this body here is not the liver, spleen, pus and 
blood that does not get tranquil. Uh, that's just that. So this is a reference to the body as a subject or an energetic formation, a nervous energy, and realizing this must be a real priority I consider in this day and age to just be able to feel uh, discharging, easing effect in one's body. One tranquil in body experiences happiness. The mind of one who is happy becomes concentrated. So again, yeah, this concentration word is there, but it, the mind does it by itself because it feels comfortable. So that movement in that way. How is that going to happen? And I say, you know, one's state of being is that, that, yeah, there's a lot of thinking going on. We live in a highly literate world. There are many things to think about. It's not your fault, particularly. So then one is perhaps mindful of thinking. So this quality, okay thinking is going on. So we might begin with that. Well, thinking going on. And to some extent, that is already helpful because uh, rather than trying desperately to focus on your breathing or something else, you will actually focus on what's, you know, where I'm at and see how I can get from there into this quality of... of uh, discharge, contentment, stability. Now, it's not going to happen through uh, fighting with the thoughts. That sets up a negative turbulence. Uh, it doesn't occur through following the thoughts. It occurs through knowing the thought. There's a thought directly knowing. What does that direct knowing mean? We just sense it as the movements of articulation with their various agreeable, disagreeable feelings, pleasurable object, mm. thoughts that arouse ill will, thoughts that arouse passion, thoughts that arouse excitement, sadness. And yeah, but actually all this is just thinking, what is that? So coming out of the details to the singularity of the experience of thinking, uh, it's a particular bubbling movement, it churns on and on, it's got break tiny pauses in it, it chatters away, it seems like me, but there's this. And so one might say, well then, what's the feeling of it? See if we can take it into the feeling base, mental feeling, agitation, um, or, or excitement. Don't need to be, you know, just buzzing around. Uh-huh. And then how is that, just naming it like that, and how is buzzing around feel in the body in terms of bodily energy? Do I slightly pressurise, like I feel a lot of energy moving in my head? And could you come to the whole body? So, and your trunk into your abdomen, slowly. So you're shifting from the mental feeling to the bodily feeling, and from the bodily feeling to the bodily base, there is body. It's this, it's happening in this. 
So one arrives in a singularity. There is a body. There is a feeling. There is a body. This reason to to uh, arrive at a singularity, apart from that the mind feels more steady like that, is within that stability, through that stability, and through in fact inquiring what is the most stable aspect of my experience at this time. You're going to come down, you can eventually, if you move through that, you arrive at something about the mind. There's an aspect of mind which is always stable. But we don't normally go there. The stableness, stability, we call it um, various terms, but awareness is one of them, very commonly used, but it's just the mind is just aware, it's receptive. If it wasn't receptive, none of this would be happening. The very basis of mind consciousness is this receptivity. Before, you know, or whatever the objects are. And naturally, this is something that we've heard expressed many times. I'm sure. But it's also the case that one can kind of have that sense of, well, I'm aware of thinking, it's just going on, and still, it isn't really discharging. Uh, and then you, you sat there for an hour, witnessing yourself thinking, okay, I'm aware of thinking. So, and this is where I would suggest the, the sense of referring it back to, or including the bodily aspect of that, the bodily aspect of that primal state, the body consciousness, if you like, the primary quality of body consciousness is presence. Presence is the word I use. It means wherever you are, you're here, aren't you? Whatever you look around, wherever you are, you're here, you're always here. And that here, has no specific location in the world of space or time. It could be here in Chittorst, here in Portsmouth, here in Bulgaria. It's here. Here is just here. There's no feature to it other than being here. <laughs> but that's always there. Or you know, if, if one lingers, you come back to that root basic state and you put the two together or you let awareness rest in the here and the very this is where unification can occur because it's like the bodily factor and the mental factor have blended singularity and it becomes firm and things don't impact and they tend to fade out. Not because one's pushing them, but just because you're much more interested in what's stable and always here. And to just bear that in mind. 
Because clearly, you know, in all this um, going on, the Buddha did say the deathless. Now, somewhat mysterious term. But this isn't a bad place to start uh, looking for it or, or getting a feeling for it. This sense of a unified presence, aware, present, not changing, steady, not even yourself, not personal. Hmm. And maybe through that, to become more dispassionate to becoming to identity, to circumstances, to this and to that, and to states of this and states of that, feeling this and feeling that. Wouldn't that be helpful? And the movement towards simplicity, direct simplicity, which is factual. Because one is here. There is a hereness. There is an awareness. Uh, Together, unified. So I think this helps us to uh, remember mindfulness can be either very tight, we tighten it up, or eventually we don't have a focus to which it's become so loose, it's become sort of like vague. Whatever's going on, it's going on, so. It's just going on, it's just going on, so what, you know? And then it becomes rather nebulous, foggy, and there's no progression. Uh, And the progression is not done through trying to progress. The progression is done naturally through the power of sati entering into the truth, or the most fundamental truth of mind, and the most fundamental truth of body. Whether it's male or female, young or old, it's here. Whether it's dying or sick, it's here. In a way, this takes us out of the physical into the fine material, uh, uh, where perhaps it's easier to begin to more fully release the clinging, the grip, the way that this gets formed and fascinated. So this uh, mindfulness and then Dhamma Vijaya, moving the attention around, moving one's uh, receptivity around, whether it's thinking or not thinking, uh, with a certain aim in mind, a certain background. How does this get more stable? How does it uh, lead to the elimination of unskillful states? How does it lead to the propagation and the fruition of skillful states? How does it lead to liberation? And never to forget that that possibility. Dhammavijaya. naturally, if one gets the hang of this, this is the source of energy. Uh, one's interested. It's not forcefulness. It's 
the energy, the mental energy of being interested in this process, tackling the karmic complexities, carefully unraveling the knots, handling them, knowing how they unravel and what they unravel into. So within this very body and mind, with its strange personal contortions and features, the Buddha is saying, this is your path. I offer these teachings, this sati, and the factors that arise in association with this for your welfare and happiness. It's up to then for us to bear it in mind, make use of it, apply it in individually into our own predicament as we practice. Then our lives are fruitful. You won't.